You're listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes, a production of the Ephesus School Network. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. The company of the angels was amazed when they... Hi, this is Father Aaron Warwick with Jason Evert, and you are listening to the Teach Me Thy Statutes podcast, episode number 38. Today's reading is from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Brethren, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. When Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse, or perhaps excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Father, before we dive into today's reading, uh, a quick uh, point of clarification We often read the term Greek in the New Testament, and so my question is, is this term only uh, narrowly identifying uh, Greeks uh, ethnically, or or does it more broadly include all the Gentiles? Yeah, very good question, Jason, but before we get into that, can I just make one comment? Uh, Sure, of course. I want to point out that on last week's episode, I assured you uh, we'd get into Romans more, and the reason we hadn't dealt with the book in the first 36 episodes wasn't your fault. It was just the way the church calendar fell. So I'm just taking this opportunity to give you a little bit of a hard time again. (laughs) We're getting around to Romans now. So on a serious note, though, uh, you do ask a good question. You know, what's up with this term Greek here in Romans 2.10? And is it strictly limited to the Greeks, as you said, ethnically speaking, or is there a broader application? And the short answer is that it's a broader application, a much broader application, but let's discuss why I say that. Mm -hmm. Yes, Father, please do. I I mean, intuitively, it makes sense that it applies beyond uh, just people who are Greek, uh, but I'd like to better understand what it means. Right, so let's begin by stating what the word actually is in the biblical Greek. It's eleni or in the more ancient Greek pronunciation, the word is Hellenic. And I'm sure in that more ancient pronunciation, our listeners can hear that the word is connected to the word Hellenist or Hellenic. And in fact, sometimes in English translations, this word is actually translated as Hellenists. Interesting. So what exactly is the difference between a Greek and a Hellenist? Another great question, Jason. You're on a roll today. Um, (laughs) So today, after the rise of the nation-states, we probably conflate the Greeks and the Hellenists. So to many people today, a Hellenist would simply be a Greek person or someone from the modern state of Greece. But at the time the Book of Romans was written, a Hellenist was a much broader term that would have applied well beyond the modern state of Greece. Okay. Uh, So to whom would it apply then? Well, without any question, it would have applied to the larger Roman Empire, where Greek was not only an official language, but where Hellenistic culture was the bedrock or foundation of their civilization. And I don't want to get too far into this subject, so I will oversimplify and speak broadly. 
Uh, in essence, you have Alexander the Great many hundreds of years before the New Testament was written, and he begins to spread his power and to create a more homogenous empire, and much of what he does in the civilization that's created eventually becomes synonymous with Hellenism or Hellenic culture. So by the time you get to the book of Romans, this reference to the Hellenists refers most specifically to the Gentiles of the Roman Empire. But of course we know that the term as used by the Christians referred more generically and broadly to the Gentiles, to all Gentiles, and not just those in the Roman Empire. And how is it that we, that we know that, Father? Again, it, it seems to make sense, but I just want to make sure that I fully understand how we can j- make that jump uh, to say that the term translated Greeks in today's reading really means all Gentiles. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things here. First, as I said on last week's episode, this epistle to the Romans is really best seen as the end of a trilogy. And to recap or summarize that, you have the life and teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, the first part of that trilogy. You have the life and the teaching of the apostles in Acts, the second part of that trilogy. And Acts begins with Peter taking the message primarily to the Jews, but tangentially to some Gentiles also. And then, of course, Paul taking the message out throughout the rest of the Roman Empire. And then finally, the trilogy ends with this book of Romans, which, as I said, is an open invitation to the nations and to the Romans to accept the gospel message. And Rome was not only the center of the empire, of the Roman Empire, but to any Roman, it was the center of civilization. It's much like New York City to Americans today, as Frank Sinatra said, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. If you're American and you want to spread a message, you can do it to all of America and at the same time to all the world from New York City because it's, from our perspective, the center of civilization. But what I would add as the TKO, as the technical knockout on this point to say that this uh, term Greek or the, the idea of a Hellenist applies to all Gentiles, we can see from the witness of the apostles that this gospel message was intended for all nations. That's why we celebrate, for example, the Apostle Thomas as the evangelizer to India. Immediately, the disciples themselves begin taking the gospel message wherever they could go, and we have 2,000 years of Christian witness since then that virtually no Christian ever understood the words of Romans to apply only to the Greeks narrowly or even to the Hellenists more broadly, but to every human being who ever lives on the planet. Great. Thanks for expounding on that. And and, uh, if we move to another topic, digging into today's reading, we hear about God's judgment. And Father, you've mentioned in the past that most of us really don't like to think about the judgment, or perhaps we even try to convince ourselves that maybe we will somehow avoid the judgment altogether. As much as we might try uh, to avoid this topic, the passage I read today very directly addresses the judgment. And here I'm reminded of the divine liturgy when we pray for a good defense before the fearful judgment seat of Christ. What do we need to be sure to take away from today's reading as it relates to our salvation and judgment, Father? Yeah, you're right, Jason. I have spoken a lot before, not necessarily just on this podcast, but in sermons and talks at church about judgment being an unpopular idea today. And I still believe that this is true. But I think an even more unpopular idea is the idea put forward today in this passage from Romans about how the judgment will take place. 
What do you mean by that, Father? What I'm hitting on here is the fact that the passage clearly states God shows no partiality. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I understand uh, why you think that would be unpopular. Right, it, it certainly doesn't sound like an unpopular or controversial statement, but I believe in fact it is, and I'll explain why I say that. Look at our own legal system in America, okay? Every American, or at least close to all Americans, would tell you, if asked, that they think a judge should be impartial. We have a phrase for this, uh, a judge should not legislate from the bench. And by that we mean the judge is supposed to impartially apply or interpret the law. They aren't supposed to make laws, then they aren't supposed to take into account what a person looks like in court or their socioeconomic background and so forth. Now, obviously, in, in real life and in our court system, that often doesn't happen, but it's still the ideal that we as Americans hold. So on its face, it definitely seems uncontroversial and even a popular idea to say that God or a judge shows no partiality. But again, just sticking now with our own system, look at what happens. We just recently had a controversial case where the Supreme Court ruled that people identifying on the LGBTQ spectrum could not be discriminated against in employment based on the court's majority reading and application of civil rights law. And so what happens? Does the country say, well, that's the law, the judges were impartial, no big deal? No, that's not what happened. Uh, you have a very large contingent of people who claim the court is legislating from the bench. And I'm not going to get into the issue of my own opinion on this matter. I'm simply going to state that two conservative judges, this is, and this is just a fact, uh, both of them controversial at the time of their appointment because uh, liberals thought that they would, you know, again, quote, legislate from the bench their conservative views. Uh, these two judges actually voted in the majority on this issue because they were, in their opinion, impartially applying the law. So what's your takeaway from that example and how it applies to the Bible? So my takeaway is that, in theory, we all say that judges should be impartial. But in reality, most of us don't think they're being impartial if they apply the law in a way we don't like. So my example was by no means to pick on many conservatives who are complaining, uh, not all of them, of course, but some of them complaining about this current ruling. In fact, you can use many examples of liberals claiming the same thing, that judges legislate from the bench when uh, they don't like the decision. But this is just a very recent, well-publicized example. That's why I use it, again, not to pick on one side or the other. And it demonstrates that everyone agrees that a judge should be impartial in theory, but in practice, there will almost always be large groups that think the judge is not impartial. So in this case, you had, in this court case I mentioned, you had liberals who assumed that the aforementioned judges would legislate conservative views from the bench. They despised these judges at the time of their appointment, and now they're singing their praises, which I'm sure will only last until they make an unpopular decision, one that they oppose. On the other hand, you have some of the conservatives who lauded these judges' appointment and who tend to talk about the need to not legislate from the bench, and now two of their selections for the Supreme Court, at least in those judges' minds, did what they claimed they would do, and they were impartial judges of the law. So in the end, everyone will say on a survey that they think judges should be impartial, but how they judge, 
or I might even say when they judge, which is their job, a large portion of society will criticize them or be upset with them. It's an interesting observation. And how does this apply then to Romans and the idea presented in today's reading about judgment and what you said about the idea of God being an impartial judge as being unpopular? The parallel in my mind is this, that practically everyone is going to say that if there is a God, you know, some people, of course, not believing in God, but we're just saying, so if they, if we say there is a God and if he is the judge, and obviously we Christians clearly accept and profess that, then he should be impartial. So again, on its face, it's entirely uncontroversial. But just like a civil judge, this judge has to actually do his job And when he does that job of judging, many people are not going to like the verdict. And they're not going to like it because he will be truly impartial, as outlined in today's reading. So just like many conservatives say they want a judge to apply the law and not legislate from the bench, but then get upset when the decision sides more with uh, a liberal opinion on an issue, and just as liberals say that they want a judge to apply the law and not legislate their own morality or their own ideas from the bench, but get upset when the decisions side more with the conservative side of the issue, so it will be with us Christians. We may say that we want an impartial judge, but what we really want is a judge who will be merciful to us because we call ourselves and profess to be Christians. But what we're hearing today in Romans, which was most strictly applied to Jews and Gentiles at the time it was written, is more broadly applied today to Christians and non-Christians. Would you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, what I mean is that God, as the judge, is not going to ask for your certificate of baptism at the judgment or ask if you called upon his name and professed to be a Christian. Rather, as we heard in today's reading, God is going to impartially judge whether you did his will, whether you lived as he commanded you to live. In the language of Romans, it does no good if you just heard his message, or even by extension, if you spoke his message by saying the right words. He's going to cut through all of that and impartially judge whether you actually lived by his commandments, which, as we've discussed so many times, can be summed up in whether we extend the mercy and grace and compassion he gave to us and offer that in return to others. So we as Christians need to examine ourselves and understand this passage you read. Being a self-proclaimed Christian or even being recognized by an official church body as a Christian does us no good before the judgment seat if we do not live as a Christian. The advantage to being a Christian and to attending church is that we constantly hear what we're supposed to do. We're constantly reminded, and that's an important aspect of the liturgy, the remembrance, the anemnesis, it's called in Greek, is a central aspect of the liturgy where we remember, we call to remembrance all that God has done. But if we do not live that way, then the impartial judge will make from our perspective an unpopular decision on the day of judgment. And so I'll finish with what you said about praying for a good defense before the fearful judgment seat. The only good defense is to live the way that Christ lived, by extending his mercy to the needy neighbor, as he defines it in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he will judge us based on that impartially. 
a difficult topic today, but of extreme importance. Thank you, Father. We began today's episode by clarifying what is meant by the term Greek. Father Aaron explained that this term is used more broadly to define all Gentiles and all nations, not just those who are ethnically Greek. We then discussed the reality that while many people are uncomfortable with the idea of God's final judgment, perhaps an even more unpopular idea regarding the judgment is how it will take place. In today's reading from Romans, it reads, God shows no partiality. While this sounds ideal, those who do not receive a favorable judgment will no doubt feel that the judge did not apply the law in an impartial manner. But today's reading is clear, that God will impartially judge whether or not we lived according to his will and his commandments. Simply hearing or speaking his message is of no defense for us before the fearful judgment seat of Christ if we did not live as Christ lived. Thank you for listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes. We hope you tune in next week for a new episode. Glory to Thee.